Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 111. And before we read that psalm, we will pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, the Holy Scriptures. We thank you, our Father, that you have given us this which we may study, this which with this which we may be instructed by, strengthened by, and built up in. Father, I pray we're given ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. And this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 111. Reading the whole psalm. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendour and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen. The psalm set before us is something of a masterpiece. It starts with praise the Lord. You'll notice if you just quickly look, the very first phrase in Psalms 111, 112 and 113 in um, the ESV is translated, praise the Lord. It's simply hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Both Psalms 111 and 112 are what's called acrostics. If you uh, wonder what an acrostic is, you would take an alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, for us in English, etc., etc., and you would try and write each line of a poem starting with each letter of the alphabet, A, etc., B, etc., C, etc. Well, this is an acrostic based on the Hebrew alphabet. It's in perfect order. Every letter is represented. When I say perfect order, excepting for the very first line, the author took the hallelujah, which starts with what would normally be the fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and he put that at the head so that he could start his psalm with hallelujah. Praise the Lord. After that, every letter is in the perfect order of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a, it's a psalm obviously speaking about that which God does, the works of God, that which God accomplishes. And it's got this joyful, uplifting note to it. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. So what we're learning here is that we are to praise the Lord and the view that is taken is how the Lord appears to those whom he loves. What we see when we are in Christ. Basically, the scripture 
speaks from the point of view of worshipping the one true living God. Those who do not worship the one true living God are not included in what is being said here. This is about the experience of a worshipper who is responding to the works of God. Um, in, in application, I'm going to um, point out the things that are spoken of here that the people who are the people of God do. Looking at verse 1, it will tell us that they praise God, that they give thanks to God. In verse 2, they study all that God does. In verse 4, they remember the works that God does. And in in um, verse 7 and verses 8, they obey the commandments that God has given. And finally, this is summed up in the phrase at verse 10, that God's people fear the Lord and in fearing the Lord have found the beginning of wisdom. So that's the application that I'm going to try and work on a little bit a little bit later in the sermon, but that's what we're getting to. First of all, we're looking at what it is that the Lord does and has done. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Verse 2, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. My friends, we who would claim to be God's people should always be amazed at the power of God and at the greatness of the salvation that he has worked on our behalf. The moment we forget that we do not work our own salvation, the moment that we forget that we do not deserve our own salvation is the moment we start to forget how great a work salvation is. God in creating has done great and mighty works. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. These are great and good things. God in upholding his creation from one day to the next and upholding the laws by which he orders his creation from one day to the next is doing great and good things. But my friends, God has revealed himself to us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden and they had every advantage. They started off with the image of God built into themselves. They started off with the righteousness of God built into that image. They started off with freedom to serve God in all good conscience. They started off in a place of enormous blessing. And they chose to believe a lie. They chose to follow after deception. They chose not to cling to the very words of God who had created them. Always remember at that moment, the moment that God walked into the garden, we're told that the Lord came into the garden in the spirit or the breeze or perhaps the heat of the day. Spirit, breeze, cool of the day is most likely the translation. At that moment, 
God could have justly, righteously, without any wrong, he could have simply obliterated, uncreated, wiped out the human race. He could have acted in complete and total judgment at that moment and destroyed the image bearers. And if he had done that, that means no more you, no more me. No more of any of the people who came before us. Destruction. Finished. He did not. He did not. He clothed them. Though he judged them. Though he disciplined them. Ultimately, he clothed them. And he made promises to them that he would save them. That he would rescue them from this pit into which they had so recklessly thrown themselves. He would rescue them. Though death for a time would rule over them, yet he would bring them back to life. He made promises. There was judgment, there was discipline, yet there were promises. And my friends, these are great and mighty works. Never forget them. But then remember that in fulfilment of those promises, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternally begotten Son of God, God of himself, truly God, that one, the one whom the saints of the Old Testament called Yahweh when they met with the angel of the Lord. No one has seen God, the only begotten Son who is in the Father's bosom. He has made him known. Or to quote the ESV, the only God who is in the Father's side. He has made him known. That one. He took upon himself flesh. He joined us where we are. In every way he was like unto us, excepting he was not guilty of sin. Great are the works of the Lord. And it says studied by all who delight in them. Examined, meditated upon. These things should always be in our minds. Always. These things should ever be being turned over by us. Full of splendour and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. I ask you, how could God reveal himself to humanity in such a way that we could understand that which is being revealed? God in his absolute and infinite perfection, which is in a way beyond our grasp. We know the words. We can say the words. We kind of know what the words mean. But God is beyond our reach in so many ways. He fills the heavens and the earth. He's greater than the heavens that he created. Yet, He reveals himself to us and he reveals his perfections to us and he reveals the fullness of his perfections to us. I ask you, how could people like you and I be shown, have a demonstration of both the justice of God in that he hates sin and that sin must be punished 
and the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the grace of God, in that he is loving. Our um, our psalm before us here today tells us that the Lord is gracious and merciful, referring, referring to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Gracious and merciful, showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. But if you read Exodus 34, 6 and 7, if you look at it again, which we read earlier, the next word is but. But. Who will by no means clear the guilty. Where can all of this be demonstrated? Where can all of this be shown? Where can all of this be made visible? in such a way that people like you and I could look upon this and be humbled by it and worship the God who loves us and who is at the same time so holy that he will not tolerate sin in his presence. Well, my friend, it happened at the cross. This, this Lord Jesus Christ, this son of David, this son of Mary, this son of man, this son of God, He took upon himself flesh and he was unjustly killed. But it was just in a way. Why? Because he chose to stand in our place. He put himself where we ought to be. And there he received the judgment that we deserve. What does God's judgment upon sin look like? It looks like darkness. It looks like thirst. It looks like a man being broken. It looks like the loss of blood. It looks like mockery and jeering. It looks like being abandoned so that you think that even God himself is not there with you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Said our Lord upon the cross. That's what God's judgment upon wickedness looks like. That's what God's hatred of sin looks like. Do you understand? That's God's wrath being expressed. That's humanity receiving the judgment of God. It's there before your very eyes, my friends. What does the mercy of God look like? What does God's love look like? Well, you see, he was innocent. He wasn't there for his own sin. He was there for our own sin, my own sin, your own sin. God brought forth a substitute. God put a suitable man in our place. It was a man who had been called the son of God, Adam, the firstborn of all creation, the one that God had created, raised up. It was a man who got us into the mess and as God had said, it will be a man who gets you out of the mess. There will be a seed of the woman and he shall crush, bruise, aggravate the serpent's head. He passed through death on our behalf. My friends, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. You see, what's being said there as our Lord dies upon the cross is that we, you and I, cannot save ourselves. If just one person 
of all who had ever been born could have actually saved themselves, could have actually done right in the sight of God, could have actually worked according to the law of God, if just one person could have actually achieved salvation apart from being saved by God. (coughs) Pardon me. Just one. That person could have gone to the cross and died on behalf of others. But no one did. Scripture tells us of God looking for someone to stand in the gap. Scripture tells us of God looking for someone to work salvation. And he says, and none was found. So I took the weapons of warfare to myself. And I went forth and I worked salvation. Full of splendour and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. (coughs) Our God does what is right. Salvation was not worked sinfully. Salvation was not worked sinfully. What do I mean? How could salvation have been worked sinfully? Well, imagine there's wickedness, there's sin, there's evil, and God against his own righteous nature simply says, I'll pretend it didn't happen, I'll just forget about it. Now, this is God who is perfect, perfect in his knowledge, absolutely perfect in his knowledge. I don't know if you can remember something so important to you that you've never forgotten a single detail of it. But here's the thing. For God, all things are perfectly known. No detail is ever forgotten. And God's righteousness, God's justice demands the punishment of sin. If he simply pretended that sin did not happen, the accusation could be thrown back. You say you're righteous. You say you do that which is right. You say that you hate sin. And yet here you are pretending that you didn't even see it. It's a pretense. God could be accused of not working salvation in righteousness. But the scripture says his righteousness endures forever. You see, Adam was a representative. That first man, Adam. He was a representative. He was a representative of all who came after him. He was a federal person. He was called a federal head. He represented all who were of him. You know, if our prime minister is travelling overseas, our prime minister represents us, whether we like it or not, whether we voted for the person or not, whether they do well or do wisely or not. They are our official representative when they are travelling. They represent you and I. Adam was our representative in the trial of the garden. And in Adam, all fell. In Adam, all fell. So God can set things right by setting in place another representative. You had a federal head. His name was Adam. In Adam, all fell. All who came from Adam, all fell. 
They fell in Adam. They were born fallen. You think it's not fair? You think it's not fair? What? That's not fair. Why should I be blamed for sins I didn't commit? Your father was a sinner. Those were the terms of God's judgment. It's as simple as that. By the way, my friends, the scripture tells us that we get credited with righteous acts that we did not commit. Because you see, the righteousness that is the Lord Jesus Christ's, that is counted as the righteousness of his own people. We're clothed in a righteousness that we did not perform, that we did not earn, that indeed is not ours in terms of our works. If you don't like being credited with the sin of the federal head who is Adam, well, my friend, on the very same terms, you have no right to claim to be credited with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's the same relationship. He is a federal head, a representative person. And he is a perfect and innocent representative person. Not only does God's righteousness endure forever, but God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit's righteousness endures forever. And when God the Son chose to become incarnate and took upon himself flesh, his righteousness endures forever. That which is divine is unchanging. It cannot change. It will not change. For God is perfection. His righteousness endures forever. So... God doesn't pretend that the sin didn't happen. God pours the judgment for sin out upon the federal representative. The head. The one at the head of the stream. He poured out his judgment upon Adam and his judgment upon Adam was that all who are born in Adam will die just as Adam will die. In the day that you eat of the fruit, you will dying die. You will surely die. Okay, now he pours out his judgment upon the new representative, the second Adam, the son of God incarnate. He pours out his judgment upon that representative, but that representative is not in any way guilty. He's willing to receive the punishment for sin, even though it is terrifying to him in a way. In his humanity, it was terrifying to him. He struggled in the garden. He sweated drops of blood. If this cup can be taken from me, let it be so, but not my will, let your will be done. He willingly received the judgment for sin. When God forgives us, my friends, he's not pretending we didn't sin. He's crediting, counting, imputing our sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our federal head. Our new representative man, he died the death that we deserve and we live under the blessings that he earned. We live clothed in the righteousness that he bestows. Even his death was a righteous act, perfectly according to the will of God. He died for us. Our salvation, my friends, is righteous, not because you and I are righteous, not because we are doing righteous works. Our salvation is righteous because all the works of God are righteous. And no one can accuse God of not working righteousness. And if someone says, where did the punishment fall for the sins that 
Christian X committed? The answer is very simple. It fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ in full, in full measure, paid completely, finished, paid for, done. And God saves in righteousness that endures forever. These are the great and wondrous works of our Lord. He causes his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Verse 5 of Psalm 111. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. This is one of those sayings where a small thing is being used to represent a greater thing. He provides food for those who fear him. Ask yourself the question, if he's providing your food, is there anything that you have that he is not providing? If we can honestly say he provides food for those who fear him, can we deny that he is providing everything that we need? Food is a representative. We won't live upon this earth unless we eat. It is possible to starve to death. He provides food for those who fear him. And with regards to eternal life, life on into eternity, he provides all that is needed for that life. Everything that weak and pitiable little sinners like you and I need, he provides. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Who rules over all of creation at this time? Who's seated at the right hand of God? Unto whom has all authority been trusted? The Lord Jesus, our federal head, our king, our saviour, our older brother. First born in the household of God. The Lord Jesus. But my friends, here's where we need to understand what looking from within the congregation of the upright means. Okay, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. The world looks at us and says, you own nothing and you are nothing. You are deluded fools. You think, you think you're the people of God, but look at you. How many gather in the name of the Lord Jesus? How many are here to hear this guy rant and rave about these old, dusty, ancient words. The world says you're nothing. That's what the world says. The world says you count for nothing. And, my friends, if we want to look with the eyes of the world, that's what you'll get. We're nothing. When was the last time we had a great victory that uh, the world could not deny? You know, when was the last time the church in Australia actually turned an election, for example? You can't remember it, nor can I. We're nothing as far as they're concerned. That's why they disregard us and they don't care. You know, we, we, we tend, we evangelical Christians, we tend to um, register with or understand more clearly the conservative side of politics. Okay, there's a fellow now, he's the head of the opposition party. He's the head of 
conservative politics in Australia at this moment. And recently there was a bit of a bit of a kerfuffle. A guy got the sack from running a football club because he went to a church where once upon a time a pastor preached a sermon where he said marriage is only between a man and a woman. What did this conservative political leader say? You know, the one whose um, political ideals we in some way feel that we connect with. What did he say? What were one of his comments? He said that the church needs to give up on its bigotry and its hatred and move forward with the times. Even the conservative politicians don't care about us and they're not really interested in whether or not we vote for them because as far as they're concerned, we are of no great import. We're nothing. They don't care. Well, the scripture tells me that we've been given the inheritance of the nations. The scripture tells me that the meek will inherit the earth. The day will come. The day will come. There's a really interesting thing in the book of Romans, if you want to turn to it. Romans chapter 16. Psalm 110 reads, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110. Yahweh says to my Lord. King David wrote, Yahweh says to my Lord. He's there basically calling two people God, if you don't get that. Two persons God. God the Father and God the Son. Yahweh says to my Lord that he would put his enemies under his feet. Well, look at what the Apostle Paul says to the Christians in Rome. And before we read it, let's think about it for a moment. What would the situation be if you're a Christian in Rome up until the days when the Apostle Paul himself was executed for being a Christian preacher? Well, you're under the power of the mightiest empire in the world at that time. The head of that empire was most likely a corrupt and evil idolater. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but there's much in the book of Revelation that speaks of one who would be called an antichrist or an evil person. Well, one of the early candidates for that type of person is an emperor called Nero, a prince of wickedness, an evil man willing to see people die and tortured. There were times when Christians were burnt. They were dipped in tar elevated, put on a pole and then set fire to and used for light to light up an outdoor barbecue party. That's what Rome is like. And the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans and in chapter 16, verse 20, he says to the Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's a reference to Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Paul says to the Romans, living in Rome, idolatrous empire that it was, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He takes a promise that has been given to David's Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. 
the one that Jesus said refers specifically to him. He is David's Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. And he says to the Christians of Rome, under the power of the Roman Empire, fear not, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, my friends, the church is still in the world and the Roman Empire, as it was, is not. And empires will fall and until the day that the Lord Jesus returns, the church will continue to be in the world doing the work of God, preaching the gospel, calling people to salvation. The wickedness of Satan will be defied by the righteousness of the people of God and we will be victorious. Constantly and always. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that means life will be easy. I'm not saying that you will get promotion after promotion. I'm not saying that it is guaranteed that we will see the greatest revival ever. I'm not saying any of those things. But I'm saying that we who are in Christ will be upheld in our faith. And having been upheld in our faith, we will be standing and victorious over the world. We will have overcome the world. Remember this, anyone who dies in the faith is counted in the Holy Scripture as being someone who has overcome the world. The weakest believer who dies in the faith is an overcomer of the world. And the world is at their feet, under their feet, being crushed by their faith. Why? Because that faith, connects us to the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, the inheritance of the nations is ours. I'm not saying that means it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that means every battle is going to be a victory. Sometimes you get pushed back and sometimes you push forwards. I'm not saying any of that. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not trying to preach to you sunshine and butterflies, happiness and unicorns and all that other stuff. I'm not telling you the Christian walk is going to be a walk along a path strewn with rose petals. But I'm telling you that if you are in Christ, the inheritance of the nations is yours. Why? Because it belongs to the Lord Jesus himself. All authority in heaven and upon the earth has been given unto me. That's what the Lord Jesus claimed. The resurrected Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, as he sent forth the disciples, as he sent forth the church into the world. Go, therefore, go. Make disciples, baptize, teach them all that I have commanded, and I will be with you even unto the end of the age. If things look not so good at this moment, in the end, understand the Lord has given us the inheritance of the nations. We're the victors. There's no wrong side of history for Christians. We're always on the right side. We're on God's side. The psalmist here, Psalm 111, and many think this psalmist is David, by the way. I, I didn't mention that. It could be David. It's not, um, it's not, it doesn't say a psalm of David, but many think it was David. The psalmist here goes on to speak of God's commandments. The works of his hands are faithful and just, verse 7. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. His precepts, 
His laws, his commandments are trustworthy. Remember I pointed out that um, in telling us that the, when, where the psalmist here writes, the Lord is gracious and merciful, he's pointing us back to the book of Exodus. He's pointing us back to the giving of the law. Now, you could say the law in the Bible is the first five books of the Bible. Much law was given, and you're correct, much law was given to the people of Israel. But only ten words were written by the finger of God upon the stone tablets. Only ten commandments were written by the finger of God upon the stone tablets. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. We'll read from verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel, Deuteronomy 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, now here are the ten. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image, carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt And the Lord brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honour your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour, and you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbour's house nor his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbour's. These words the Lord spoke to all the assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. It was the ten that the Lord wrote on tablets of stone. In the book of Exodus, we're told that the Lord wrote on those tablets of stone with his finger. You say, what does that mean? Does God have a literal hand? You've got fingers, Scott. No, it's something that we're given to understand. It's the way Moses was given to understand it. He took blank tablets of stone up the mountain. He brought written tablets of stone back down from the mountain. And that writing was done by God himself. 
by the power of God's Holy Spirit, I would tell you. If we were to go into the New Testament, compare a couple of different passages, we would find that the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew says, if I cast out demons by the Holy Spirit, and in the Gospel of Luke says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God. So we have these ten commandments. They're written on the tablets of stone. Now, what would that mean to you and I? Can we be saved by the works of the law? And the answer is no. (laughs) No. Can we do the works of the law? The answer is no. It's not within us. It's not according to our human nature. The flesh hates the law of God. The flesh cannot satisfy the law of God. The flesh refuses to do so. But someone had to. And it's the Lord Jesus himself who did so. He fulfilled the law's requirements. He fulfilled the law's demands that you and I might be saved. And you say, "Okay, we forget the law. No, (laughs) no. The law was given forever. The commandments are given forever. These 10, these 10 stand for all time, I tell you. Am I sure of it? Absolutely. I want you to turn with with me now to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. Because there Jeremiah promises that in a certain covenantal arrangement, something is going to be written. We'll pick it up at verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, 31, 31 of the book of Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Okay, this this was the covenant. And And the Ten Commandments were the covenantal requirements placed upon the people of God. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Notice something. Verse 33. And I will write it on their hearts. We've looked at it. (coughs) There are five books that are called the law in the Old Testament. But which section of the law was written with the finger of God? (coughs) Pardon me. (coughs) (coughs) What is written by God? The Ten Commandments were written on tablets of stone by God. And now God writes again. And this time he writes not on stone. He writes them on the heart. He writes them on the heart of his people. He transforms the heart of his people. You want a a question? Is this fulfilled in the New Testament church? Is the fulfilment to be found in the people of God? Because it does actually speak of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. How literally should we understand that? Well, remember this. The Apostle Paul tells us that we who share the faith of Abraham (coughs) are considered to be the children of Abraham. 
I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 at verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink. (coughs) Oh, pardon me. But with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Do you pick up now what the Apostle Apostle Paul is saying, what he's referring us back to? You see, the Apostle Paul, a Jew raised upon the Jewish scriptures, knowing great, great, you know, loads of scripture, memorised, knows them off by heart. And he reminds the Corinthians, something has been written on your heart by the Spirit of the living God. And what is it? The commandments. The ten. The standard of righteousness. That which makes us different to the world. The world has its laws. Sometimes some of the world's laws are in agreement with some of God's laws. Sometimes. That's, that would be called common grace. To this day... Most in the world would call murder, murder and say that murder is a bad thing and that the commandment you shall not commit murder is a good commandment. Okay, there's enough common grace at least that people understand that. But what's abortion? You see, they separate from the law of God when it suits them. How about adultery? Not a good thing. Marriages should be exclusive. Marriages should practice covenant loyalty. Marriages should be between a husband and a wife. People should not be committing adultery, full stop. Does the world agree with us? Not around about us. Not around about us. The attitude of the world seems to be take every opportunity to fornicate in any way that you can because who knows? That seems to be the attitude of the world around about us. But God's laws are forever and adultery is not for God's people because God's law has been written upon their hearts. I'm not saying that you can't possibly be tempted by breaking the law. But what I'm saying is that as the people of God, we should love the righteousness of the law of God and should be striving (coughs) to be faithful and obedient to the law of God. (coughs) Pardon me. The commandments of the Lord are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. He sent redemption to us. We did not work our redemption. We did not make redemption happen. He sent redemption to us and he has commanded this covenantal redemption forever. One of the great issues that I have with um, what is probably the most popular approach in what calls itself the evangelical church today is that they basically preach up 
the power of a person's will. You become a Christian because you decide to become a Christian. If tomorrow you choose not to be a Christian, well, you're still a Christian because yesterday you chose to be a Christian, but you're now going to be living like the devil, but somehow or other you're going to be saved in the end, etc., etc. And the whole thing denies that being born again is a work of the Spirit of God and that therefore being born again is not within our personal ability. (coughs) If being born again is just an idea, if it's just a certain way of thinking, well, you can have one idea today and you can have a different idea tomorrow. You can cast it off. But Jesus says that to be born again is to be born from above. (coughs) And the scripture says that it is a permanent change. A true change worked in the heart of a person. I'm not saying that a Christian is without sin in this world and perfect, but what I'm saying is is that a Christian has had the law of God written upon their heart and is seeking ever more to conform themselves to the commandments of God because they know that this is righteous in the sight of God. Turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to pick up our reading at verse 1. 1 John 3 verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There it is. It's really simple. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. There's your simplest definition of sin in the scripture. I ask you a question. Just be honest. When the Apostle John wrote that sin is lawlessness, what laws must he have been talking about? I'm sure he wasn't talking about the Roman laws, though perhaps some Roman laws agreed with God's laws at times. I'm sure he wasn't talking about the laws of any nation in the world at the time that he wrote it. When the Apostle John says sin is lawlessness, he's talking about lawlessness in the context of the law that God had given. The ten that were written on stone that by the power of God's Holy Spirit are written upon the human heart. Sin is lawlessness relevant to those laws. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, that sounds a little bit absolute, doesn't it? It's a bit scary. I'm a Christian. I'll admit to you in all honesty, I still sin. But I think that what John's getting at here is this um, lightweight, joyous, chasing after lust without even... um, A pang of conscience. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So, in 2 Corinthians, how did the Apostle Paul describe a conversion? By the power of God's Holy Spirit, something was written on the heart of a believer. And we've worked out that this is a reference to God's promises in the Old Testament. It's the law that is written on the heart of a believer. A believer's heart is transformed by the injection, by the power of God's Holy Spirit of the law. Well, the Apostle Paul, I mean, the Apostle John here is speaking of exactly the same thing but he's giving it in a slightly different way. He's using a different metaphor or a different illustration. No one born of God, okay, born of God. What would John be speaking of? Well, the same thing that he was speaking of when he gave us the words of Jesus in John chapter 3. Lest ye be born from above or unless ye be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Lest ye be born above, lest ye be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see, we're brought back to this law and we're brought back to the demands of a transformed heart. We who are Christians we ought not be able to casually sin. You want to claim to be a Christian? Well, I want to know, does your conscience trouble you? Do you take your own sin seriously? Does it pain you? It should. Why? Because if you're telling me you're a Christian, what you're telling me is that God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, has written the law upon your heart and that when we sin... We're actually sinning against the nature that God has given us. Therefore, we should be in conflict. And so then you get in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul speaks of the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that you cannot do the things that you should. In other words, a conflict, an internalised conflict. You know you're tempted to turn aside, but at the same time you don't wish to turn aside. You wish to walk in holiness and in obedience. The law, I mean, the the warfare, my friends, if that internal warfare is familiar to you and that idea of struggling with sin is familiar to you, that is not evidence that you're not a Christian. That is evidence that you are a Christian. Only soldiers go to war. And God's soldiers are those who are born again in Christ. If you're in the war, you're there because God put you in the war. Those who are not in Christ are not troubled by their sins. Indeed, they simply want to get as much of it as they can. They make it their practice. God has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. He has changed the hearts of his people forever. That's one of the reasons why this idea that being born again or this 
line of thinking which preaches up the will of man, which builds up man as though man by his own autonomous will makes the right decisions, this is where it all goes wrong. Is being born again something real? Is having your heart transformed something real? If it is, Jesus tells us that it's done by the Spirit of God. It's done by the power of God's Holy Spirit. It's God himself who makes the change. Is God's spirit so weak that someone like you and I can just undo the change that he has made? I don't think so. If being born again is a true thing, if the transformation of the human heart is a true thing, well, then it's not just switched on and off because weaklings like you and I decide to switch it on today and off tomorrow. But, The scripture assures us that this true thing, this real effective change that is worked by God is a powerful, effective and ongoing change. It most definitely bears fruit. It most definitely changes the one who believes. It most definitely lifts us out of the dirt. I know and you know, we all know, we're never going to reach perfection in this life. We're never going to reach that state where we can say, you know what, I am so sanctified that I don't feel tempted by anything. And by the way, you know, as an immature Christian, sometimes you have that thought. (laughs) And then something happens and you (laughs) realise, wow, (laughs) that was, you know, I stumbled pretty easily. I fell pretty easily. You know, I thought I was mighty and strong in spirit and it turns out I'm easily tripped up. We're never going to reach that point in our life. Our our life as Christians is always going to be a reflection of the warfare between the flesh and the spirit. But remember, only soldiers go to war and we're in Christ's army, therefore we're at war. My friends, it's not that you struggle that's the problem. If you weren't struggling, I'd be very worried about you. That's the truth. If there's growth, if there's fruit, if there's some increased in Christ-likeness, that's all, that's, that's all we have the right to seek. That's all we have the right to hope for. Is the person in question walking in the way, growing in Christ-likeness, The question's not, where are they in the way? Are they a senior saint, a junior saint? Are they highly sanctified? Are they struggling in sanctification? It's not the question. Are they growing in faith and walking with the Lord? That's it. He has commanded his covenant forever. He has commanded his salvation forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So now I go back to those things that I spoke of that, that we had that I very quickly brushed across. What is the impact or the effect of the Lord working in someone's life? Second Corinthians thirteen five reads, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Now, once again, there's another phrase that speaks of the new life. This time it's Jesus Christ is in you. 
if Jesus is in you, his nature is in you and his nature is perfect and holy and desiring of righteousness. Transformed heart, changed. Examine yourselves. So looking at these things in verse 1, this believer is thankful. I will give thanks to the Lord. Philippians 4, 6, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The most bitter people in the world are the people who cannot be thankful for anything. They cannot see the blessing in anything. They will not see the blessing in anything. And you talk to people and all they want to do is moan about their disadvantages. Mum wasn't perfect. Dad wasn't perfect. Nobody liked me. I look like this. I talk like this. Whatever it might be. And they can't drag even a speck of thankfulness from within themselves. We who belong to the Lord, we're thankful. No matter what, no matter what life we've led, no matter where the Lord has drawn us from, no matter what has happened, we're thankful. We who have been transformed, we who are being transformed, we study the works of the Lord. We delight in them. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. These things are in our mind. We ponder them. We seek to understand more deeply. We want to know. We want to know more. We want to know more more about Jesus. We want to know more and more about God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We want to know more and more about the Holy Scriptures. We want to know more and more about everything that God does. This is the thing that um, we set our minds upon. We study the works of the Lord and we delight in them. Verse 4 tells us that he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. It's a communion service day. What were we told concerning the elements when the communion meal was established? Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I'm not, don't get me wrong, don't misquote me. I'm not here at this moment saying Psalm 111 is a detailed and precise, precise um, prediction of communion. That's not what I'm saying. Don't, don't, mis- don't get that wrong. But I'm saying that that which we do here this day is a perfect example of that which God has promised in the Old Testament, particularly here and now in Psalm 111. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. My friends, the bread and the wine. Remember the body of Christ broken. Remember the blood of Christ spilled. The blood of the covenant that says we have eternal redemption and salvation. Remember, remember, remember and do not forget. Remember. He provides food for those who fear him. And look at this remembrance. It's so simple. It's food. You know, it's funny, you know, we all sort of understand this. Why is it that communion glasses are tiny? Why is it that you get a crumb of bread? 
Well, it's not as though you can eat your way into heaven, is it? You know, it's not as though uh, a loaf of bread that were as big as this building would in any way more depict Christ, who is the true bread from heaven, than the smallest crumb. The bread is not Christ, literally, but Christ is the true bread from heaven, truly. This meal, it's the promise of a feast. It's a foretaste. It's the promise of the greatest feast ever, the wedding supper of the Lamb. It reminds us of how we got the invite. And as we consider how we got the invite, we realise just how wonderful this wedding feast must be. The scripture tells us that concerning those people who are of God, his precepts are trustworthy and they are to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. We live according to the commandments of God and not because we're earning our salvation. That's not what it's all about. We don't earn our salvation. We don't even lose our salvation on the time at the times when we stumble. Believe it or not, our sins have been paid for by the Son of God. Even the sins that we're going to commit, they have been paid for by the Son of God. But our lives are marked with obedience to the will and the commandment of God. You know, might seem like a silly question, but how many of you have got a, have, have got a statue, you know, an idol or, or something in a little temple or a shrine in the corner of your house? And every time you walk in, you light a candle or put a flower in front of it or whatever. How many of you have got that? Doesn't happen in our house, mate. Of course it doesn't. The law of God's been written on your heart. You've got the word of God to tell you all you need to know about God. You've got the spirit of God to keep you faithful. Men, how many of you need me to tell you that you should be delighting in your wife and not be tempted by any other woman? I'm not saying that you're supposed to be up absolutely perfect. I understand the weakness of the flesh, my friends. That's why we should be careful where we look. But how many of you actually need me to tell you that you should be delighted in your wife and not be attracted to any other woman? You'll know it. Ladies, it's the same. You know it. His precepts are trustworthy. Those people who are the Lord's people, they perform them in faithfulness and uprightness. We're not earning our salvation. We're living like Jesus lived. We're being Christ-like. You know, I, I realised sort of very early in my Christian life, you know, at that time, um, all I knew was I was a Christian. I knew that I was committed to the scriptures. I wanted to understand the scriptures. I wanted to obey the scriptures, etc., etc. But it seemed to me in the church that we were attending, when people talked about Christ-likeness, they really were only talking about niceness. When they talked about Christ-likeness, they really were only talking about politeness. They were, they were talking about being inoffensive. They were talking about being, I'll use the word, and I don't mean it in any um, insulting way because those who know me well know that I love a hug. But it's almost as though they're saying that Christ-likeness is to be totally huggable. 
you know, to be Christ-like is to be someone that wants to hug your nana and someone that your nana wants to hug. Christ was perfectly righteous and holy and when he asked people to accuse him, no one held up their hand. Do you want to know why I'm not going to ask anyone here to accuse me of any, any sins? My wife's sitting there. She's got the answers. <laughs> I love her. And she wouldn't ask the same stupid question and she would point at me and say, I'm not going to ask that question either because my husband's standing there and he knows me. But when Jesus asked the question, everyone went. Mm-hmm. Pontius Pilate heard all the witnesses and said, I find no guilt in this man. We who are in Christ live in ever increasing Christ likeness. And that means we're growing in sanctification. It doesn't mean we're not, in the, we're not at war, but it does mean that we are growing. My friends, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The fear of the Lord. It's the summary statement in the Old Testament. If, if, if the Old Testament is describing someone as a faithful believer, that person will say, I fear the Lord, or he fears the Lord. It's the summary statement. The fear of the Lord. My friends, if anyone claims to know God and does not fear God, they don't know God. It's as simple as that. They don't know God. And people say stupid things in stupid books. Oh, I was brushing my teeth and Jesus appeared to me and started to talk to me like my best friend, Look, Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of God with the scepter of authority in his own right hand and with that scepter, he can crush and destroy anything and grind it to powder. It's as simple as that. I'm telling you, as much as, as, much as the Lord has given me the ability to love him, the first time I come into his actual presence because he remains the son of God incarnate, I will fall to my face in fear because he is God, the eternally begotten son of God. He might just pick me up and say, fear not. But I'm telling you, if he walked into this building, we would be looking at the floor because he is holy and righteous and all the almighty power of God is exercised according to the will of God, according to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is at his right hand. I spoke of obliteration. God could have come into the garden and ended the human race at any given moment, and it would have been just. My friends, Jesus could come into the church and end any of us at any moment. Honestly, The reason he doesn't is he's promised us that he loves us and he is our good shepherd. But even so, you don't come into the into the into the presence of the almighty without feeling fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it practice what? Well, the psalmist in Psalm 111 has summed it up. It's thankfulness. It's meditation and study upon the works of the Lord. It's remembering the works of the Lord. It's obeying the commandments of the Lord. It's loving the law of the Lord. All of these things are wrapped up in the fear of the Lord. 
All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. My friends, we will praise him forever. Among many other things, we will praise him for his goodness forever. And he is worthy of all praise. And in a moment, Joel is going to lead us in our communion meal. My friends, he will bring these things to our remembrance. If we belong to him, he has commanded his covenant forever. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for your word, the Holy Scriptures. We give you thanks for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, your eternally begotten son. We give you thanks for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you have poured out upon the church. And we pray, Father, that we would be ever sensitive to his promptings, to all that he would have us know. Help us, Father, to practice righteousness in your sight. Not that we may earn our salvation, we know that this is foolishness, but that we may be more like Jesus and that we may be a light upon the hill. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.